Please turn also to the Old Testament, to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. The text for this morning is Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 18 through 26. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 18 through 26. This also is the reading of God's holy word. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. May we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Our Lord God, we thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you, Father, for the work that you have given us. Father, we acknowledge that you are always working and that when Christ walked this earth, that he was diligent, that he was faithful to the calling that you had given him. And Father, we acknowledge that you never need rest, but that Jesus, when he was on this earth, that he that he took upon himself human flesh, that he needed rest. And yet his decisions and his priorities were perfect. And Father, we pray that you might grant us wisdom in our work, that you might grant us joy in our work. Father, we pray, acknowledging that Jesus is the one who spiritually did the perfect work, which we absolutely could not do, so that we might have life. We thank you, Father, for the good news of the gospel, that he is the one who toiled on our behalf, those of us who were unworthy to receive his great work, his work of righteousness. Father, we thank you that in him we have eternal life. And help us, Father, to remember that you are the one who gives us life, breath, and all things, even enjoyment in our work. We pray, Father, if any are here who do not know Jesus Christ, we pray, Father, that you would open their hearts to embrace the good news of the gospel. We ask, Father, that your son, Jesus, would be exalted, that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Children, have you thought about what you will end up doing in life? What type of job you might have? Perhaps you've asked this question, looking at what your parents do, and uh, perhaps you've asked, well, uh, what if I become a YouTube sensation? If I have a million followers? Uh, what if I become a day trader so I can make you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, in, in a few minutes? And perhaps these are some of the questions that you're asking yourself. You think about the work that God has given us, because it's actually God who calls us to certain work. It's not just ministers who are called to a special calling. All the work that man has, God provides that person with that calling. 
that there are certain gifts he equips people with. And there is blessing in work. But at the same time, as we think about Genesis 3, in the garden, after Adam and Eve fell, there was a curse. By the sweat of your brow, you will earn your food. So there's both blessings and curses in life, in our work. That on one hand, there's, there's pain, there's sorrow involved with work. There's headaches. But on the other hand, God in his grace allows us to enjoy our work, to find fulfillment in our work, to, to earn our bread from our work. And that we ought to look to him because he is the one who calls us to that work. He is also the one who blesses our hands so that we might have bread to eat. And he is the one who grants us enjoyment in our work. When we think through this book of Ecclesiastes, there's any number of ways to describe it. Perhaps some of the ways uh, we can come up with is that Ecclesiastes talks about life under the sun or life under the curse of God due to the fall. So Adam and Eve sinned, and then there's life under the sun because of the curse. And that life is difficult because of the curse that God has given man. Curse upon the ground, curse upon childbearing, uh, curse, the curse that that, uh, trickles down to creation. So that you think about the environment and the effect on uh, the world and the animals and the trees, that there is an effect of the fall. Ecclesiastes is an attempt uh, to bring meaning and satisfaction in life by general revelation. So we look at the trees, we observe patterns, and it's an attempt to bring meaning and satisfaction through general revelation, but we realize how lacking that is And rather, we turn to special revelation from God, from the scriptures, in the good news of the gospel. We see that general revelation is lacking. And that's why man needs special revelation to come to understand the proper worship of God, to come to understand uh, the the doctrine of, of how men are sinners. We're in need of a Savior in Jesus Christ. And that Jesus fulfills all of the requirements of the law in our behalf. Ecclesiastes is uh, wisdom arrived at after exhausting all of the human options. What are the logical conclusions to human-centered belief? The best that the humans can come up with. Beginning with the exclusion of God, this is the sad and the painful and the worthless result. So life without God is meaningless and worthless. Life with God, life centered around God, that is a purposeful, that is a joyful, that that is a life worth living. So when we look at our passage, uh, what we have in verses 18 to 23, it's a a treatise on, on work, on labor, on the toil that God has given man. And then in verses 24 to 26, he provides uh, some type of a a glimpse of light. So earlier in this chapter 2, he talks about various things. He talks about wisdom, he talks about pleasure, and then he talks about labor. And it's as if verses 24 to 26 apply not just to toil and labor, but they apply to pleasure, they apply to wisdom. And You'll see that in the book of Ecclesiastes, this moment of clarity is repeated on a number of occasions. So here, chapter 2, verses 24 to 26, after he's, he's done with his, quote-unquote, complaining, right, or, or his gripes, that he gets this moment of clarity. And we see it happen several times. And uh, I hope to go through this. In this way. So the truth that we see is eat not the bread of anxious toil, but labor unto the Lord, who alone gives you present and eternal satisfaction. Eat not the bread of anxious toil, but labor unto the Lord, who alone gives you present and eternal satisfaction. We'll look at this in two points. The first is the curse upon your labor in verses 18 to 23, and the consolation in your labor in verses 24 to 26. 
So the first point, the curse upon your labor, verses 18 to 23. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. So, as we think about the difficulty of of work, of toil, we have to think about the effect of the curse of God upon Labor due to the fall. Think back to Genesis chapter 3. The specific words that God had said to Adam. He said, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat your bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. Here, the author gives this main reason in verse 18 and 19. He says, I must leave it to the man who will come after me. So apparently, the description given is that the author is one who is laboring with wisdom, with intelligence, with diligence. And that he has to give his wealth then to someone who will come after him. And who knows whether he be wise or a fool. Perhaps the simplest way to think about what the author is talking about is if if we assume that this is Solomon for a moment. And you think about Solomon, that Solomon had had the privilege of enjoying all the hard work that his father, King David, did. So his father established the kingdom. He moved the center center of rule from Hebron to Jerusalem, and that that Solomon was one who got to eat of the fruit of, of, of his father's labors, but also of the fruit of God's provision. And then you have the very, very sad situation. After Solomon, there was his son Rehoboam. And remember what happened here. Rehoboam, a young man, he had two sets of counselors. He had the counselors he inherited from his father, And then he had his young men counselors who were fools. And the people had come to Rehoboam saying that, hey, listen, you know, your father, uh, there was so much wealth here, but he taxed us very hard. And can you show us, can you cut us some slack, essentially, is is what they were saying. And uh, he says, oh, come back in three, three days and I will give you an answer. So he talks to his father's counselors and they say, you know what? They're right. We we, got to cut them some slack. And then he talks to the young men and they say, hey, listen, you know, these people are, no, no, that's that's, that's not a legitimate request. So then he makes this insulting statement. My my little finger is thicker than my father's loins, right, which is quite comical. And, And then he says that my father disciplined you with whips, was it? I will discipline you with scorpions. So basically he's saying, hey, you guys, I'm telling you that you can go pound sand. I'm going to make it worse. So with this decision, 10 of the, 10, 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel had said, we have no, we have no part in, in the son of Jesse, right? the descendants of Israel. They're saying, hey, we're out of here. So the northern tribes completely broke off. And we think about what Solomon would have thought about this if he were alive, right? He would have been saddened by it. And here, poor decisions on the part of Rehoboam, a fool. And he divided the kingdom so badly. I think about more, more uh, common views about this, about uh, having to, to provide an inheritance or hand off something. You think about the, the concept of a family business, 
So a family business, children take up leadership in a, gener- in, in a company where you have uh, four generations of people working. Uh, at, at your retirement, let's say you're a salesman, and uh, you've spent years, not years, but decades, uh, building relationships with customers, building relationships with, uh, with companies, people within companies. You've spent 25 to 30 years to build. And then the new guy uh, who got the job by nepotism because he's the son or the son-in-law of the president or the VP, he takes over, right? And you wonder whether or not he even cares about trust, building trust with the customer. That you introduce him to the customer, they're sizing him up, and you're wondering, wow, I'm about to retire in a few months. A good, a good relationship between these two companies, but then what's this young man going to do? Then you have an inheritance. I hear these stories from Dutch families. Okay? So this is me, an outsider, looking over there. They're telling me about uh, what happens in a family. And you talk about this one Dutch father... Right, who has 10 children. And this man, they, they describe him as he, he works 16 hours a day, every day but Sunday. And, and he, ha- he manages to put food on the table, clothing. He, he pays for all their education. And after all of it, after all of it's done, right, he's worked until he was 75 years old. And these 10 children he's provided everything for, these 10 children can't manage even to pay for a thing. They can't manage even to pay for a birthday party for their father. There's some some sense of shame involved in that. In verses 18 and 19, what the author is getting at when he says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. The implication here <clears throat> is that the author is saying, you cannot take your wealth with you. There's only two destinations. There's heaven and there's hell. And you're not taking the wealth with you, material wealth with you, to either one of those places. It doesn't transfer. We've seen various cultures. You have the Egyptians, you have the Chinese, you have the the pyramids, you have the terracotta soldiers and their wealth. They they put it in their big giant tombs and they're still there today. So, the, the pain, the sorrow that the author is expressing is that what you have worked hard for in this life under the sun appears to go to waste. It appears to go to waste. When we think about the many pitfalls regarding work, many pitfalls regarding work, he asks this question. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? That's verse 22. What is a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils under the sun? Rhetorical question. Uh, Essentially the answer is nothing of substance. So all all that we've worked for, no no matter how, how much the dollar amount, how much the weight of gold, he's saying it's nothing of substance. For all his days are full of sorrow. I'll give you some examples. Perhaps you can identify with them. Working for an unjust, a cruel, or an unreasonable boss. I realize that this one is probably the worst. Because if you're, if you're working for an unjust, a cruel, or an unreasonable boss, it doesn't matter how much they pay you. They can double, triple, quadruple your pay. It's still just horrendously bad. And the best example, biblical example I can think of is Pharaoh. If you think about what he did. Moses has the difficult job to go to Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world at the time, and says, Hey, my God, 
has told you, let my people go. You can think about this, this one-way ticket. You, know, you might think, Moses, hey, I've been given this one-way ticket from God. I'm going to go to God. I'm going to go to Pharaoh. God has told me, you're going to let my people go. And he's wondering, hey, am I going to walk down the steps? I'm only going to walk up the steps, and I'll be carried down. And as a result of that, Pharaoh says, hey, I'm upset by this man. I'm insulted by him. I'm going to make his people more difficult. I'm going to make life for his people more difficult. So he says, make bricks without straw. We provided you straw before to make bricks. Now we're not going to do that. It's, it's representative of a boss that has unreasonable expectations. How do we make bricks without straw? Boy, you're going to go gather it. Think about the, the various ways that this comes up. The boss has, uh, has been told by his faithful employee, a 30-year veteran, he's retiring. So then he hires this new guy, fresh out of school or fresh out of the, uh, the, the trade school. And, uh, and he's going to expect that within a week, this man is going to have the same yields, the same skill, the same productivity as the guy who's been doing that job for 30 years. Completely unreasonable. I'm going to pay you a third of what I paid the other guy. And since you're younger, you have more energy, you're going to work harder and have greater yield with better skill. Unreasonable. Let me think about failures on the job. Whether due to neglect or incompetence or even no error of your own. Perhaps what we would humanly say is just uh, bad fortune. Bad events happen. Think about various things that can happen. Loss of property or uh, wealth. So it might be a lot of money. So someone came by the, the work truck while you were going back and forth, unloading, loading, and they walk off with your $500 uh, drill. Well, you need that drill to get your job done. Then you think about various things that can happen. Construction projects. Uh, that's all money. Now, that could be a whole lot of money that's lost. But how is that compared to someone who has people's lives in their hand? Think about a bus driver, right? Let's say he, he didn't quite get enough sleep, not because he was goofing off at night, surfing the net, but uh, he had a crying infant or two and he didn't get enough sleep. And the bus gets into a crash. And people are injured, people die. Having that involved in work. What about companies not viewing their employees as their greatest asset? So you think about, oh, these people, uh, they've worked hard, they, they know how to serve the customer. And other people come in and see their employees. These are just commodities. They're like widgets. We can buy these, we can get rid of them, and we can get new ones. Not thinking about how there's skill involved. Uh, there's training that needs to be put in them. What about the glories of self-employment? So you think about all those problems dealing with bosses, dealing with companies, uh, and then... And then you have uh, the whole matter of, well, then I'm going to go into business for myself. Owning your own business, being your own boss. But just look at the year 2020, about small businesses. And how many of those are out of business now? Well, if you didn't like your boss, you can be your own boss. Well, in reality, owning your own business, you could say you're on your own boss, or you could say you have several hundred bosses. Those are your customers. Is that really better off? You didn't fix your problem per se. You just created more. What about the company or the boss rewarding disloyalty? I, I know about this one. This happened. I, I remember there was, there was a director in my company. He knew he was going to get the boot. He was about to be laid off. So he went to competitor A and talked to them, and he got a job offer from them. So uh, the VP was about to go to this director to call him into his office and tell him, okay, uh, we're giving you your two-week notice, right? You're out of here. But then when he went to that 
to that VP's room, he told him, hey, I'm, I'm going to resign. So, oh, wait a minute, what's going on? He said, yeah, I'm going to go to competitor A. And, and then he said, oh, no, wait a minute. So while they're about to lay this man off, he had, a, he, had a, he had this offer from competitor A. They're like, well, shoot, wait a minute. We, you, you, you had no performance, and this entire division's a mess. But since our competitor thinks you're worthwhile, we'll, we'll, we're going to increase that offer and have you stay. And we think about the injustices of work. And then there's the outsourcing or the offshoring of jobs. You know what? We don't need you. We're going to move this job overseas where it's one-fifth of the cost of your labor. And then there's lawsuits. You think about the whole medical field. It seems like it gets so expensive. You look at something even as simple as the field of obstetrics and gynecology. If there's any infant that's born with a birth defect, seems like the OB doctor is going to get sued. You think about how much uh, medicine costs, and largely because of the malpractice insurance. That it seems like it's rather regular for people to get sued. That's part of doing work. And then there's a matter of freeloading. Children, I'm talking to you now. Think about freeloading. Parents, we, we need to be educating our children in certain ways. I find it so challenging at times if, uh, if we're late, already late in our schedule with something, it's like, okay, it's time to have children involved. Well, if we let them do it, it's going to take 50% longer. I'm going to have to clean up after them. But when is a good time to have them start doing work. Am I going to expect, as an unreasonable boss, that they're going to start doing it, and they're going to do it perfectly? No. We've got to get them involved. We need to get children trained up. It happens in the church. It happens in the home. And what is the other outcome? The other outcome is we just end up doing everything for them. And I recall a minister had said, this is one sure way to ruin your children. Because if you always do everything for them, then they can always blame you for the outcome. They never take ownership of their lives. But here, what we ought to understand is that this training starts young. Oh, no, you've got to help. You've got to help set up. You've got to help clean up. Our elder Wayne read earlier in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. See, this, this comes at loggerheads with especially the younger generation. This snowflake generation, speaking of snowflakes, uh, the, the entitlement. Hey, I, I'm entitled to this. I should get everything for free. Well, the sad thing is, sooner or later, somebody else's money is going to run out. Right? The, the, uh, the U.S. Treasury can't keep on printing more money so that all these things you can get for free. So the, the idea of getting things for free, getting things for nothing, probably starts within the home. And for Christian, Christianity... For the gospel, there is transformation that must happen. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. The one who steals must no longer steal, but rather he must labor, producing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. How annoying is it when you get up in the morning to go out to, go out to work, and you find that the door of your garage is broken open and that your car, there's things missing from your car or your car is damaged. You can't drive the car to get to work because someone said, hey, I'm going to make a quick buck, a quick buck, a snack, a snatch and grab. And then you're, you're hindered from doing your job because the car that you need to get to work has been damaged. You think about how in Christianity... It's, hey, listen, we need to stop doing theft. We need to start doing productive work. 
so that the one who steals must stop stealing. And that's not just stop stealing, it's stop stealing and do something productive with your hands. Do something good so that you can share with someone who has genuine need. Talk to a, one of my classmates who uh, went off to one of the Commonwealth nations, so the, the British-ruled countries. I won't say which one, but he was there, and uh, one of the headaches that he had was that he said he was dealing with not one, not two, but three generations of Christians who have lived under the concept of socialism. Of, hey, the government provides for us. There, there is a culture of dependence. No, I'm going to get it for free. I don't need to work diligently. And to, to try to break into that and address these things, hey, listen, you know, this is what the Lord has told us. And, and to say, no, 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 this, this is what we've done. This is the way we've done it for three generations. But how else can there be change other than a new hope a new master. When Jesus says, he who steals must steal no longer. And then you think about, what is that doing? If, if we're saying, oh no, the government's going to provide for me all that I need. When in Christianity we're saying, oh no, God has commanded me to work. And that he will provide for me as I use these means trusting in him. That there is a transformation of our culture, the transformation of our thinking and our expectation and our faith. No longer faith in man, faith in a system. It's faith in God. All this must change. And then you look at some of the difficulties of, of this work. In verse 23, we talked about the days being full of sorrow and this work being vexation. I've given you just a few examples. And then, then this matter... Even in the night, his heart does not rest. Is it true for you? Is it true for you that you have difficulty sleeping, falling asleep at night, thinking about the pains of your work? Will the sales come in? Will I get in trouble for what happened? Or do you have difficulty staying asleep? Difficult falling asleep, difficulty staying asleep because you're eating the bread of anxious toil. Thinking about these things, all the things that are going wrong. Think about the, the New Testament reading that we had earlier, the heartwarming exhortations the Lord gives us. Matthew 6, verses 30 to 34. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven... Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Think about Work. We're commanded to work. So you have all the pitfalls, so don't be lazy. Right? We have to be diligent in our work, yes. And then even when you're diligent, right, we think about all the things that can go wrong and they keep us up at night. And, and then we have these commands of God here about not to worry, not to be anxious. You realize that worry and anxiety are sins. Just as murder and bestiality are sins. And no one wants to commit the, the murder and bestiality because that's scandalous skin, sin. But then everyone seems to be okay with this worry and anxiety. But, but that's still sin. We ought not to do it. And here, Jesus actually uses the phrase, Oh, you of little faith. Is our God going to provide for us? Yes. Well, is, is there difficulty and pain involved in labor? Well, yes, that's part of the curse. But are you and I trusting that God will sustain us? He'll provide for us. God has made us exceedingly good promises to us, his beloved children. And he has commanded us to believe in him. You realize that the non-Christian has no such promise. The promise I'm thinking of. 
that the righteous will not go hungry. And when was the last time that I saw the children of the righteous begging for bread? The answer is, God says they won't. They won't go hungry. Now, they may not have the caviar and filet mignon, right? But they won't be begging bread. The non-Christian has no such promise. That's why he's unable to sleep at night. That's, that's why they're on sleep medications. That's why they're on, on amphetamines or, or whatever it is. So I command you, people of God, even in your work, as toilsome as it is, as painful as it is, do not let God rob you of your joy in serving Him and whatever He has called you to do. That God promises us Psalm 127, that he gives to his beloved sleep, or he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. And so I ask you, a simple diagnosis. Are you able to fall asleep at night? Are you able to stay asleep at night? Or are you staying up worrying about work or whatever comes along with the work that you're doing? If you're unable to sleep, then I say, Think about God's promises and realize that we worship and serve a gentle and a loving master who has given us true hope and exceedingly great promises. Our lives, our children's lives, our grandchildren's lives are all in his hands. And you and I, of all people, need not worry. We think about various things of work. I ask you also this. Do you hate your job? Do you hate your job? What about your job do you hate? Is there something lacking in you? Meaning, is it a matter of gratitude towards our God? Are you unable to count the blessings from God in your work? Because if that's true, maybe we should start changing that. Or else God will change it. Because when we're not thankful for the things we have, God does this mysterious thing of taking those things away, either permanently or temporarily. And then we realize the blessings that we had. And we give thanks for the, for the blessings we once had. Do you hate your job because you desire some other type of work? Well, there's, there's no harm, no foul, necessarily, in changing a line of work. It's acceptable. Are you unwilling to leave your work out of fear? Because, well, I don't know if that could make a living. And you think about, well, is it an honest living? Is it a righteous living? Right? You can't become a drug dealer. Right? Uh, you, there's certain jobs you can't take. You know, being a hitman, you know, that, that, those, those kinds of jobs, you know... That's, that's not a fulfilling work, right? That's not a God-honoring work. But if it's, if it's beneficial to people, right? If it's God-honoring, well, is there a reason why you can't change? Perhaps it's, it's taking that step of faith. Think about the work of Bezalel. So Exodus chapter 31. We're told that God gave this man Bezalel. He all kinds of skill. He was an artisan. He, he could do work with metal. He was a stone cutter. And we're told that God gave him those skills. He gave him the skills for his hands. And he did it for God's glory. He, he, did, he did art and, and masonry. And it was used in the temple. And it was for God's glory. When people saw this, they said, wow, look at the beauty of that temple. Well, who did it? Well, Bezalel did it. Then you look at Jesus. Of all things, it must be okay to be a carpenter because our Lord Jesus in his life was a carpenter. And carpentry was a legitimate role. Otherwise, our Lord Jesus would not have taken it. So I want you, especially children, to think the concept of a calling. That God equips you. He gifts you with certain skills, with certain abilities, so that you might work, so that might provide you bread for you and your household, and that you might excel in it for God's glory. So that you might say, hey, I'm going to do not only not a mediocre job, I'm going to excel in my work. 
So that when other people say to me, Wow, you're exceedingly good at your job. Then I might say, You know who equipped me for this job? It's my Lord Jesus. He's provided me all these things. I enjoy doing it. And He has given me these gifts to bring Him glory. So that's the first point, the curse upon your labor. The second point, the consolation in your labor. Verses 24 to 26. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Verse 24, nothing, nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. For the author of Ecclesiastes, this is like a moment of clarity. So he, he has his, uh, this is striving after wind, this is vanity. So he's saying it's, it's worthless, it's painful, I, I hate life. So he's, he's doing this uh, divinely sanctioned grumbling, complaining. But then in verses 24 to 26, he gets to this section where he has this moment of clarity. And keep in mind that we talked about how Ecclesiastes is he's showing the, the worthlessness of human wisdom to achieve for us that which is valuable. So he's trying to say human wisdom doesn't get us anywhere. So that's why he's doing the grumbling and complaining. And he gets to places like this, verses 24 to 26. Work is a curse, but at the same time, it is a blessing of God. God, by His grace, blesses it so that you can eat bread. A person, then, ought to take joy in their work. That the the work that God has given you to do, He expects you to be joyful in it. He expects you to thank Him for the work that you've given Him, that He's given you to do. And if you're not enjoying your work, well, perhaps we should take a step back and think about why, and we ought to give thanks to it, to give thanks to the Lord for it. Because if we're not enjoying our work, then we won't excel in our work, at least not for long. So as, as you no longer enjoy your work or give thanks to God for your work, the quality of your work will start to suffer. It is God who gives us the ability even to enjoy our work. See there in verse 25. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? The answer is, no one can. In verse 24, for this also I saw is from the hand of God. That God is the one who allows people to be able to enjoy their work. Not just the fruit of their work but actually the work itself, the work itself to be enjoyed. And notice here, there's there's nothing said about believer or non-believer. Even for non-Christians, God allows people to enjoy their work, to see the fruit of it, to enjoy the work itself, provided it's good work. But especially for believers... He allows us to enjoy that work. And that that even is a blessing of God to be able to see his hand involved and to enjoy the work. To have a sense of, of accomplishment. That you've done something. In the end of Psalm 90, that was the question for the psalmist. That was the desire. Establish for us the work of our hands. Grant permanence to the things that I've done. So that what the psalmist is asking about is, hey, when I die, because we're all going to die, we're going to leave this world, that what I've done will make some difference in someone's life. Here, the author mentions this principle in verse 26. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. Wow, think about that for a moment. 
The, the example I can think of about this principle is that of uh, the Canaanites. The Canaanites, the Jebusites, the Girgashites, uh, the Hivites. So God was saying, even back in the time of Noah, so the, uh, it was Ham who was the son of Canaan, cursed be Canaan, right? So the descendants of, of Noah, that God had described how the sins of the Canaanites have not reached their fulfillment. Meaning, God is saying, hey, their, their bowl isn't full. But God was telling Israel, I'm going to bring you to this land flowing with milk and honey. You will occupy houses you did not build. And you will enjoy vineyards that you did not plant. And that, if anything, is a fulfillment of this very statement. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give it to one who pleases God. That Israel was, the, they were the, the ones who benefited from all the work of the Canaanites. And even in that, even in that, we have this very principle that God is the one who rewards the work of your hands. So he, he gives you enjoyment in your work, your God-honoring work. But he also rewards the work of your hands. In Colossians 3, verses 23 to 25, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So this is the answer. If any of you have or are currently working for an unjust or an unkind or an unreasonable boss, this is the answer that you have. Don't allow your work to suffer. <clears throat> don't do less because you don't like your boss. Do your work heartily. For it is for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as a reward. <clears throat> I recall back in the days when I was in the working world, they told me about this principle. The principle was, uh, so if, if you're the bottom person on the totem pole, you're your immediate manager, that when it comes time for performance reviews, that they give you a review. And they recommend to their boss, this is what so-and-so should get. He should get this much for raise and, and this much of, of bonus and all this. <clears throat> and then his boss looks at that and usually says, sure, why not? And signs off on it. But that person's boss could say, no, 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 no. You've done it wrong. I'm going to switch things around. And then it goes up the chain again until the CEO finally, he can change things around too. Well, if you think about this principle is true in life, you realize that above that CEO is God himself. God himself is above there because he's the one who's sovereign over all these decisions. I actually had a boss come to me in my performance review. He was angry at me. And he had to tell me how much of a raise I got because it was much bigger than he assigned to me. Essentially, what he was saying was, I got overruled. Uh, but we realize that these things happen. They happen by God's doing. You can work for an unjust boss, but still the Lord can bless. Now, I want you to remember this. John five seventeen. My father is working until now, and I myself am working. Jesus describes this life that you, you and I ought to be diligent in our work. That we ought to desire work. That we ought to be uh, working to serve the Lord. Even when we think about this principle about material work, earthly work. Think for this moment about verse 21. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. We think about that in terms of earthly and material work. But let's think for a moment about how that is unjust when it gets left behind to someone else. Someone who inherits it, uh, some new guy at the job who, who doesn't value it. But think for a moment about spiritual work. Isn't Jesus the one who toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill? That he came to earth. He lived the perfect life. He, he toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill. And he left it for someone. A sinner like you, like me. So that 
we would be enjoying it. Those of us who did not toil for it, did not earn it, could not earn it. That you think about the very work he came to do. He, he worked as a carpenter, but he did something far more than that. He came to die on behalf of sinners. He toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill. And he left it for us so that you and I who are in Christ, that we might embrace the good news of the gospel. That we might say, we didn't toil for it. Jesus, you earned it. And we're going to receive it by faith. And we're going to give thanks. We're going to live our lives in gratitude to our Lord Jesus. It is a shame when inheritance is given and it gets wasted. But Jesus is one who shares his eternal inheritance with us. From him we receive the inheritance as a reward. A reward isn't earned. A reward is freely given. And as you think about your work, as you think about the one whom you serve, remember that it is Jesus who freely gave of his perfect righteousness to you and to me as sinners. And he calls us to embrace it by faith. That we ought to trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. And your promises are exceedingly great. That when you call me to work, I'm going to do it. Because you've worked on my behalf the very work that I could not do. That we as sinners can be forgiven of a great debt. Because of Jesus' perfect work, his death on the cross. He freely gives life to you as a sinner. May we go to our God together in prayer. Our Lord God, we thank you, Father, for your ways are great. Your ways are awesome. And Father, we pray that you would grant us joy in our work, that we would train up our children, the younger generation, that they would desire to be diligent in their work, that we would desire that they uh, would be faithful. Father, we pray that you would help us to be godly examples to the younger generation. Father, we pray in thanks that you are the one who blesses the very work of our hands. That you allow us to, uh, to see the fruits of our labors. But at the same time, we acknowledge, Father, that life uh, is far from perfect. That we face the difficulties. Uh, that we face uh, the heartaches and the pains of work. And we thank you that you are with us every step of the way. Father, we thank you for your guidance. We thank you for your compassion upon us as sinners. We pray that we might give you glory. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.